Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from the wonderful Luminary Network. This week I spoke with Anwar Shaikh. Anwar is a heterodox economist, founding member of the Union of Radical Political Economists and Professor of Economics at the New School for Social Research in New York City. His latest book, Capitalism, Competition, Conflict, Crisis, has been widely acclaimed as one of the most important works of economic theory to have come from the left in many years. Now that Under the Skin is on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a review there, a good one if you don't mind. Um, and if you're one of those people that sort of said, oh, you know, you talk all the time, have a listen to this one, because I barely talk any of the time. Do I? Wait, talk all the time? Oh, in this particular podcast. Well, I'm thinking any of them. I think no, you're I... talking less over the years. Yeah, I can't be bothered. Is <laughs> <laughs> that the response? No, no, no. <laughs> no, so I learned it off Joe Rogan, actually. I just thought, just don't talk. So he talks more than you. Does he? He kind of butts in in a more annoying way. I can't see you because of the cameras and the curtains. Well, you can't see my expression, you can't see that I'm crying. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, look, I learned from Joe Rogan, let people talk. That's what I learned off of him. Why Joe? Hmm? Why Joe Rogan? Because he was the only podcast I've ever... He's the only man I've ever loved. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I don't know why. He's good at it, isn't he? He's the best. Is he? Most successful. Why do you measure? How do you measure quality? I mean, is it, that's like a mainstream thing, isn't it? Then what? Like McDonald's is the best I mean, food in no, the world. I think Joe Rogan is a pioneer <laughs> of the medium. Yeah, probably. So, <laughs> and then I like him personally. So there you are. Um, so listen, Anwar, as I just told you, is an economist. The reason I want to talk to him is because we're always banging on about on my videos and in my podcast, capitalism. I wanted him to explain it, and I feel like he did, didn't he? My God, yeah, it, is. Well, well, it must be weird being him. What do you mean by that? <laughs> it's such a specific thing to have to study for your whole life. Specific to be you, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to, you're not, you're not varied. No, I meant his niche. It's very niche. You're a niche. <laughs> That's not a criticism. Why are you? <laughs> you're in a tiny niche. Just like a paper cut, <laughs> your niche. If you'd like to listen to the rest of this podcast and all of my weekly unforgiven <laughs> podcasts, which unfortunately I do do with Genuine Finn, uh, as well as brilliant guests, the, you, all you have to do is subscribe to Luminary on Apple Podcasts or download the Luminary app. I also have a meditation podcast called Above the Noise on Luminary too, which is pretty deep. In this part that I'm giving you here for nothing in the hope that you'll sign up to Luminary, I ask Anwar about the current economic employment crisis at the moment. Why can't bosses just pay people more? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's a Sesame Street little, question. Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey, buddy, yeah. I got an idea. Why can't you just give everybody a million bucks? That's what you said to him. Don't <laughs> <laughs> be defensive. That's what I said when I was talking to my friends who've got restaurants. I was saying to them, well, pay people Wait. more. And they went, Our yeah, just what you said there. And it, and it, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he says that they go, we can't afford it. And yeah. I goes, well, then your business models yeah. don't work. But then it is working in the terms of capitalism, right? Not now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like, um, okay, so listen, he'll explain these things. It's, I mean, it's obviously pretty, at some points it's pretty esoteric. And at other points, I guess I'm saying it's kind of basic, right? And there's a few points, there's a brilliant story, if you could listen to the whole podcast, where he talks about meeting Malcolm X, and it's the point where he seems most moved. Because he's an atheist. Yeah, I thought he was background. tearing up a bit. He was, baby. A lot of people tear up in my podcast. Yeah. Don't say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's have a listen. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. 
What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. In this country, like post-Brexit, post-Covid, a lot of hospitality industry, they have trouble now finding labour, low-paid labour for the positions that I guess would have conventionally been fulfilled by migrant labour. At least that's one narrative that's being offered. And like I mean this anecdotally as well as sort of more broadly culturally. When I was talking to my friends, I'm like, you know, that would have restaurants or whatever. And I'm like, why don't you pay them people more money then? like then they, you know that's surely that's the threshold and well we can't afford to pay them more money because our business and like, well then isn't your business sort of artificially held together by like a requirement for poverty and what kind of business is that so what kind of in that micro example what kind of critique of capitalism is uh available and what does that those little examples tell us well, first of all, there are two types of labor that are resisting now. One type is people who have seen the light, so to speak. They are working under conditions that are better, and they are reluctant to go back uh, to those conditions. Not reluctant to go back to social interaction and all that, but go back to the to the dreary, uniform discipline of working for corporations and struggling to excel and not having social connections uh, that they want. And that resistance has taken the form of people saying, well, you know, I don't think we want to come back at least to the, the conditions you had before. But there's another kind, which is people who uh, would like jobs, uh, who have been displaced and are desperate for jobs, but can't find them. I mean, New York City is runs on that second aspects also. All those people who deliver Everything that we buy from Amazon, which is on, on my block, a huge number of UPS, Amazon, so on. Those people want the work. They want more work. They, yes, they want better conditions, but they don't have the option of not working. They want to fight for better conditions. And that brings me to the question you asked, well, why don't you pay them more? And the answer is because it does cut into profit. One of the things the left does, which I've always argued against, is the idea that if you raise wages, you can just raise your price. That assumes that you're the only seller. But if you raise your price and there are other sellers who don't raise their wage, then you lose. So one of the ways wage rates work is that they're enforced on everybody. Then you don't get that advantage, so to speak but you'll still get a drift away from those activities. The history of that is pretty clear, by the way. Uh, you have to force the industry as a whole. Union struggles can't take place just in one shop. They really have to spread to prevent them from being uh, negated. So I'm, uh, again, coming back to this gravitational field. Firms and corporations are right when they say, they can't afford it, by which they mean they don't want to afford it. But also that if they do against competitors who don't have it, say as in China or Vietnam, or, then they may go out of business. And corporations do go out of business. People forget this. You know, um, The number of new businesses that fail in five years is astonishing. Most of them fail. So we think of this grand... Uh, scheme of enterprise and all that, but it's much more like the virus issue. 
mutations, changes, most of those die out, but some succeed. And this, by the way, is Hayek's uh, description of capitalism, cool. a series of failures from which something new emerges. Without solidarity then, uh, like worker solidarity is a very conventional, traditional socialist idea, it's impossible to uh, exact or even pressure for that push for that kind of change. Um, how then does that when you have like governments that are resistant to unionization, resistant to the rights of the workers, even though I would start to dispute like that, those taxonomies, those systems of categorization, that even by saying we, you know, even by having to unite on that basis, you're accepting the 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 frame, the existing framework, you know. But but when governments are broadly supportive of capitalist endeavor and certainly don't do enough to regulate or or uh, resist it, even though I know what you're saying is if it became about demonopolization, the pro you would just be reverting to an earlier state in the cycle if it was, for example, trying to chop the head off the beast or whatever. Um, like, and, and how does, like, you know, so I'm talking about the sort of relationship between government and big business and the inability for the rights of ordinary people to be properly represented at the level of the state. That's one part of my question. And the second part of the question is, in 2008, when the, in the American financial industry was sort of kept alive by quantitative easing, is that an anomaly within capitalism or is that part of you know certainly existing marxist critiques and is it in alignment with your analysis and doesn't that suggest that capitalist capitalism sort of can't survive even within its own uh you know paradigm okay those are great questions uh, uh let me uh let me start with the second one uh, what i've argued throughout my work which admittedly is not exactly written in a popular style, uh, is that capitalism has these recurrent patterns. And I show very concretely, for instance, that what we call great, what I call great depressions occur in a recurrent manner. Uh, and I show them beginning in the late 18th century and going forward in a, in a way that used to be called long waves. Up swing, uh, peaking down and somewhere on the down part, what we call a Great Depression, like 1929, 1980, uh, seven in, uh, 78 in, uh, in the US, and obviously 2008. And they're amazingly regular schedules in the advanced countries. So they're driven by something deeper. Now, historically, over time, the state has become more involved in uh, intervening, but not necessarily in a, in a positive way. Uh, the Great Depression led to a whole series of state interventions on banking. And these interventions all over the world were designed to prevent the bubble that exploded in 1929, that burst. Well, banks kept saying and financial institutions kept saying, but look, these regulations are throttling us. People are making money over here in real estate. They're making money in this and you're not letting us do. We need to to be freer. And the ideology was the freer you have, the more efficient capitalism. So yes, Bill Clinton signed into law the undoing of these regulations. And sure enough, we got a tremendous expansion, credit-based all over, including consumer spending and all that. We got the bubble across the whole globe because now capitalism is highly mobile, thanks to 
all the efforts of the WTO and the World Bank. And this explosion actually created an increase in output and employment and debt and a house of cards and it came crumbling down. And the state stepped in this time to try to restrict that uh, collapse. So the state has always been an active player, but not to overturn capitalism, but to, to give it uh, some uh, rails. And often the state is not able to do that. I mean, look at China now. Chinese uh, economists understand the world better than we do. And they knew what was coming, but for various political and uh, other reasons, they couldn't stop it. But we knew what was coming here too, in the US and the West, we couldn't stop it either because there's tremendous gain to be made from those activities. And so we would be stopping not just the bursting of the bubble, we'd be stopping the money that's been made all the way up. And there you're intervening in the uh, interests of the capitalist class. So history of the state is another side. The development of the welfare state comes from a long history of social struggles against the conditions of capitalism. And it's exceeded in some countries more than others. The US is the least developed, possibly the most primitive welfare state. Uh, and perhaps Germany and France and Italy have a more developed one. But these came about because of the other side. You need to intervene to prevent capitalism from blowing itself up to, to contain the resistance, so to speak, to it. So the state has been there all along, but it hasn't changed some intrinsic patterns, including what I call the gravitational field of the dominance of profit. But it's given totally, not totally, but substantially new expression to that. Now, how are we going to do this on the world scale? The historic argument was that you have to have labor across countries. This was the point of the first international, right? The whole point was that you organize labor across countries and that the workers would see that their, their common interest and in, in location as workers would bind them together. It was not true. They didn't see it that way. They saw themselves first as English and French and German, or at least were easily appealed to when the, the tensions came, in fact, reverted back to their nationality. And this is a lesson that I think Marxists uh, uh, don't often pay attention to, or don't sufficiently pay attention to. We're not characterized by one aspect of our being. It's not just if we're workers, we're workers. We're uh, 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 a large set of characteristics, some of which are, are more important to us and may more evident to us at any moment of time. They may be false, the importance of these, but they are real in terms of our behavior. You can't appeal to people unless you can speak to at least a, a range of these things. This brings me back to your original question, the spiritual, right? You don't want to say, well, you're a worker, you're sort of an entity in my, my uh, story here, and you're, you're oriented in this particular one. You, you can't say that. It's not true, first of all. We don't characterize ourselves that way. And so we can't characterize other people that way. And then the task becomes much, much harder. How do you see people with all their capabilities, their needs, uh, and their good and bad desires, um, or harmful and not harmful desires? And, and, and I, as I said, I don't 
I don't see in the descriptions of socialism that we've had historically, or even post-capitalism, whatever that is, uh, a concrete expression of this. And I personally don't think it's going to come out of our head anyway. It's going to come out of communities who find that space and try and show us uh, uh, a form if they're not extinguished. And that's a very important thing. Capitalism is aware. I don't mean as a person, but as a as a dynamic, it's aware that these spaces carved out are spaces lost to the system. So there's a tremendous incentive to come in and undermine them. Or profit. It's just profitable. If people cooperate in land, then it's an incentive to break down that corporation. And that's well known historically, by the way. Sorry, I went on too long. Yeah. No, no, that was brilliant. That was one of the best bits. If you're enjoying this conversation, God help you. <laughs> Join me over at Luminary and Apple Podcasts for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin. It's like going to university, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs>